Hello, and welcome to another edition of Globalocity Radio. I'm Doris Nagel, CEO of Globalocity, consultants helping companies successfully improve their indirect distribution channel sales, improving both revenue growth and profitability. We help with market entry strategy, improve selection and management of distributors, and our approach is decidedly hands-on and practical. Our goal is always to leave our clients with systems and processes they can easily maintain long after we finish the project. We are delighted to have with us as our guest today, Albert Castillo. He's currently Vice President of Business Development at Salesforce Europe, an outsourced technology staffing and resource company. He's also the CEO of his own company, Global Business Fluency, focused on helping technology companies grow their export sales in Europe and Latin America. He's a graduate of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which I can attest from personal experience is a phenomenal school, and the University of California, San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy. Prior to his current position, he was Director of Sales for Latin America for Textron, Director of Latin America for TTI Telecom, Vice President of Sales Europe for Sonam Technologies, and previously held sales and channel management positions for NII Holdings, Iridium, and Advanced Semiconductor. He lives in the D.C., Washington, D.C. area and is a member of the Maryland, D.C. District Export Council, as well as the Virginia, D.C. Export Council. He's fluent in Spanish and Portuguese and is passionate about what he calls Latin American business fluency, which we'll talk about today. Albert, thanks so much for being with us today. I suspect that a lot of our listeners have experienced challenges in doing business in Latin America, and we'll talk about some of those challenges and how to address them. But first, though, let's talk about you for a few minutes. What led you to create Global Business Fluency? Creating Global Business Fluency, I found after 20 years of working for American companies and opening up business in Latin America markets, that there were some really big gaps that exist. And in order for a company to, to really be successful, they have to, to understand those gaps. And so I took this 20 years of experience and I packaged it into the unwritten rules of business in Latin America. And really, my message and my goal is to help U.S. companies understand the rules of engagement and the unspoken rules of business in Latin America so they can be more successful. So I, I take it that you did this because you were frustrated by seeing the same mistakes over and over again. Yes, especially after working for some European and other international companies, I noticed that the approach to doing international business, and in my case, Latin America, was so much different, and those led to advantages. And what I saw was because American companies weren't understanding how to do the business in the region, that they were competing on price versus product quality because they didn't have the relationships. And relationships not only at the sales end, but at in every single component or part of a company. 
And that's really the big difference between how Europeans approach international business and business in Latin America and Americans. And this is something that I have focused intensely on to educate because I really think that we have the trade agreements and we have the products and we have the quality and that we should be selling on quality versus price. How about an example or two of that? So one of the examples that comes to mind is the marketing area. A lot of times U.S. companies might hire somebody to open Latin America markets or have agents and distributors in Latin America. But if the company as a whole isn't prepared, then that pays its toll. And that can be seen in in marketing because a lot of times we'll see marketing materials being developed and product development. And it all goes towards the, the U.S. market and they're just expecting that naturally that will be adapted in Latin America. For example, in translations, I see people spending millions of dollars on um, messaging in English for the U.S. market, and then they just translate it and push it out to the market, and it comes out just looking like sometimes we see these toys that we get from China, and there's instructions in 17 languages, (laughs) and and you read it, and it's like English, but you can't understand it. And so there's a total mismatch. Somebody put it through Google Translator or something. Exactly. And what's so, what's so important about this is that we spend million dollars on that messaging and what the Europeans are doing is they're making sure because they ha- they've been doing this for centuries that every single translation not only is translated properly but there's a style to that translation and that it matches the, the company style and the messaging. And so that's just one simple example, but most people who are in U.S. companies in marketing would just n- never take that into account if they haven't approached international business before. Right. You mentioned the unwritten rules of business in Latin America. W- what are those? I developed them because, you know, what I find in the U.S. is that there's a big focus on being very clear and very direct. And in Latin America, it's the opposite. You know, the focus is on being very discreet, very indirect, and there's a lot of nuances. And working with many Fortune 500 companies or venture-funded technology companies, that intuition and those nuances aren't understood. So I put together a program that set out to clearly state, you know, what are the rules to the game, how it's played, why it's like that, and what are the differences between the typical U.S. corporate approach to business and the Latin American corporate approach. And what you'll see is that they're completely opposite. Yeah, I I read one of your blogs about the difference in perception of time, particularly, I think you were talking specifically about Mexico versus the U.S., but I'm sure that to some extent that extends throughout Central and Latin America. Can you elaborate on that? Maybe give an example or two? Sure. It uh, it applies to Latin America and it applies to many, many emerging markets and even markets within, you know, Southern Europe. And it's all about a couple things. The first is literal versus figurative. When somebody says, I'll be there in 10 minutes in the U.S., that means 10 minutes. 
in Latin America, it's figurative. The mentality and the, the time orientation is not literal. It's just an estimation. So I'm so, on so, my way or... I'm on my way. So one time I was working in Brazil and we needed to deliver equipment. We were waiting for the company to rent a truck and come by and pick up the equipment. And we're, we're waiting and like two hours have passed and it's like, we're coming, we're coming, we're coming. And another hour passes and we need to <laughs> deliver the equipment by 5 p.m. And it's a two hour ride to where we need to go. So we're going through this process. And what was happening was that the person in the company who was responsible for renting the equipment went to a company that made a figurative promise that, yeah, we'll have it at this time and this place. And so this person just kind of relayed that information. And at the end of the day, there was no truck. The company didn't have the truck. And <laughs> There was no truck at all. There's no it truck. It wasn't on the way. It, was it wasn't on the way. But there's mentality to avoid confrontation at all costs. So it's polite not to say, hey, we screwed up. There's no truck. We're searching for it and we're going to do our best to do it. It's just like, yes, it's on the way. So how would someone locally interpret those messages differently? Would they have picked up on the clue that there was no truck probably? Or that it really wasn't coming? Yeah, so they would have picked up on it, and they, they probably would have had several different options lined up, and that was the case with this. So they were depending on this company, and when it didn't come through, then they had to make calls and find other companies. So instead of saying, look, I screwed up, I'm calling other companies, we're going to make it happen, they're just like, yeah, yeah, it's on its way. Because, you know, we're not going to know the difference between A company and B company. And at the end of the day, it all worked out. But as a lesson learned, it's just you can never count on the verbal, it's coming, yes. It, it's just, it, it, it's not literal. So back to the nuances, how would you pick up on, if you were a local, how would you pick up on the fact that there really was a problem as opposed to whether it's coming or not? Or is that something that you don't really worry about and you just never fully depend on someone you don't know and always have plan B handy? I'm going to answer it a little bit differently. And I think this will help the audience as a U.S. business person. How do you deal with that? It's always going in with the mind that you need backup plan A, B, and C. It can be as simple as the other week I was in Mexico City, and I needed to be in an appointment in the state of Mexico, which was an hour drive at 9 a.m. First of all, I have my suppliers lined up, and there's people that I've built relationships with and that I really trust. And what I do is create a relationship the night before or whatever with the person working at this company or the person that I have the relationship previously. And I'm like, look, I need to be there at this time tomorrow. I need you to commit to that. And I really go through very thoroughly, okay, it's at this time. How long is it going to take? What's the name of the driver? And just go through and always have a backup plan, B and C. Mm. Because I speak Spanish, 
it's very easy, and I'm actually being super direct. I'm saying this is what I need, and this is how it's going to happen. But I do it also in a way that takes into account the local idiosyncrasias or, or idiosyncrasies. It's really being pragmatic, just not taking things literally, and really doing things to ensure that what you need is going to be done. So that could be as as easy as saying setting the pickup time to 45 minutes earlier mm-hmm. and making them wait. Mm-hmm. And the reason that you do that is that 45 minutes would give you a chance if they don't show up to call somebody else. Right. But going back, you know, it goes to relationships. I have relationships with people that understand how I work. I understand how they work. And really, it's, it's a fusion of all of that. But for the first time, I would say, have a backup plan, have plan 45 minutes ahead. If they're not there in that 45 minutes, call B, call C. And it's really like the one that doesn't keep their commitment, they lose the business. Yeah. You know, you touch on something that I have certainly have seen in my dealings in Latin America or business people in the U.S. talking about their experiences is a high level of frustration. How do people get past the frustration and move to acceptance? Because clearly, as you've touched on, perceptions of time are different, perceptions of relationships. How do people get past that frustration level? People get frustrated because they don't understand the dynamics and they don't understand the unwritten rules. So they're playing by American rules. So you have to understand those rules and learn to appreciate that mindset and understand where that mindset comes And you have to then be very adaptive and accepting. And so what that really means is that, okay, you're supposed to be at a meeting at one o'clock. Everybody's agreed. I know that nobody's going to come at one o'clock. I know that. (laughs) Except you. Except me. And that also creates a problem because they don't like, I'll give you an example later about showing up somewhere at a party because a lot of business is done socially versus, you know, in the office. But very early in my career, showing up to a party at the exact time, which is rude. But, um, uh, it, you know, and the hostess came out, you know, with like cucumbers on her eyes and a bathroom <laughs> and her hair and curlers. <laughs> but getting back to the frustration and understanding the mindset is if you understand the mindset, there's a lot of tolerance. And so you just have to know that people are going to come late and also that you have the permission to come late. So you get to be on just a more, you basically unbreak the rigidity of the Anglo-Saxon mindset and just go with the flow. And once you're able to go with the flow, then people relax, people want to do business with you, and people enjoy that business. But when they feel like an American coming in with this rigid, literal, and very point-to-point linear approach, they're frustrated and they're turned off and they don't want to do business. So the key is really looking and understanding where they're coming from and adapting to that environment and then going with the flow. I, I think one of the first things, though, is to make sure even getting to going with the flow comes, I think, an acknowledgement that your way of doing business, which, by the way, I think a lot of people aren't even aware of the culture that they come from. 
and that's what the actually with the course of the unwritten rules of business in Latin America helps us become aware what is our culture, how is it perceived, what is the Latin American culture, and I let the audience answer how it's perceived, and then we find okay, these are two really opposite ways uh, or outlooks on doing things. But if we're aware of our own and we're aware of the other, you know, awareness is the first step to change. Right. So if you can become more aware of those differences and also accept the fact that not everyone does business effectively within those assumptions, you're well on your way probably to becoming more culturally flexible. And I think you made a really good point, Doris, is that you need to understand yourself and your own culture. And that's the first step. And realize that it's just one culture in a pizza pie of business cultures around the world. And that though we're a very powerful country, many of the things that we discuss in the unwritten rules apply to emerging markets. They apply to the Middle East. It's not just Mexico or Latin America, you right, know, and right. even living in Europe and working in Spain, we look at the crisis in Greece and you see the Greek attitude towards what an agreement is. Right. Or towards it, effective tax collection or let's uh, just, bribery or black market. And, and, and not even to know. go into the judgmental part, but let's just look at how Merkel or how Finland, you know, was approaching Greece and how Greece was approaching the EU, and there was a clear divide of Nordic values and Southern European Mediterranean values. Correct. And we watched that play off, but we don't have to get into like the bribery and the corruption. It's really just understanding how does the Saxon, the Nordic think, how does the Southern European think, and watch that play out. And as soon as we start to look at things without judgment, but almost as like anthropologists. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like we can look at this and say, you know, this really makes sense. Yes, I see that. And I, I, I once did a $2 million deal with Vodafone in Greece. We went through everything. And, you know, it was quite an easy process. I got the purchase order so happy and we're ready to begin executing. They want discounts. Mm-hmm. So it's suddenly understanding, okay, this is the way of doing business. And you go through the process, you hit a bump where they want discounts, and then you learn from it. And again, it starts to be literal. Nothing's in order until it's paid for is the bottom line. And right. that's, that's what I explain to business people. It ain't in order until it's paid for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think it's the openness and the validation of different ways of doing business. Because I I have seen, for example, North American business people who go with the flow, but I don't think they fully accept the differences. In other words, they go through the motions, but then they go back home and make fun of the manana mentality, as opposed to simply saying, non-judgmentally that's how they do business and that's what you need to do if you're there and and again kind of going back to it is if we had a chart or we had a imagine there's a screen and in on one side you see a circle 
And in one side, you see a horizontal line with a point at the end and the point at the beginning. And if, if we look at it, it's like the left with the line is business begins and ends and it's done. Time begins and ends. And when we look at the circle, time is circular and it ebbs and flows and it continues. So, for example, with a business relationship, the U.S. way is to look, okay, I'm going to go down, I'm going to make the relationship, we're going to do the business, and there, we're done. And in Latin America, it's an ongoing business relationship building, and you keep getting deeper and deeper, you know, beginning to know each other's families, having dinner, having lunch, spending weekends, and it's just a completely different approach. And I think if American business people go down, have those charts, and understand those approaches, they'll be less judgmental because it, judgment comes from frustration or anger. It's anger that it's not done my way. But again, if you go back to clearly understand and be aware of how is it done there, how is it done here, why is it done there that way, why is it done here that way, then you can play the game and not only kind of give a superficial, okay, I'll go with the flow, but I'll swallow the anger. You'll go with the flow. And what I do is I use that flow to make business because anytime you run into any types of conflict with a business, whether it was the truck issue or anything else, that's an ideal time to bond and build a relationship with those that you're dealing with. So the people who needed the merchandise delivered by the end of the day it was an excuse to say, look, I'm really sorry this is happening. This is what's going on. I'm rectifying it. I'll be there by the end of the day. Please work with me, and I'll give you a call in an hour just to check up. Suddenly, I'm taking some American customs. I'm going with the flow, what's going on there, but I'm communicating with the end user customer in a way that's very courteous and clear and understood, but no anger and just very listen, we're going to make this happen. I'm giving you my word. If I need to deliver it at 12 midnight, that's what I'll do. And so it's all about awareness. And when you start to become aware of the unspoken or unwritten rules, then one has a platform or a base to begin to launch from. And over a period of time, you can evolve that and start to change. And then the anger and the frustration, it all kind of goes away because you're not dumb anymore. You're actually in the game, in the know, and you understand the clues and the signals. And that's a lot of, of what I do when I work with these companies. Let's get switch gears just a little bit. I think you've made some really great points about generally doing business in Latin America. Let's talk about managing distributors and agents, particularly from an American exporter perspective. What framework do you use to help American exporters using distributors and agents do business more effectively in Latin America? A lot of American exporters that I've worked with, particularly on the smaller end, are very much about the phone culture and using email. It may not even get on a plane very often to go visit their distributors and agents. Can you offer some comments on that and some suggestions on helping exporters find more simpatico distributors and agents and managing them more effectively? Yeah, 
it's kind of a loaded question with many different uh, pieces and components. So I'm going to try to address it uh, little by little. So the first is that the typical um, relationship or distribution model that U.S. companies use is, okay, I'll find a reseller or an agent and they'll go and sell in that country and you know uh they'll speak english and that will you know if they speak english i know i feel more comfortable and i'll come down for an occasional trade show and you know that's kind of the attitude uh -huh. and 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 that does not work and I'll, I'll give you a prime example i was working um uh with a company um and one of our suppliers of of um, engine parts had uh, their, an indirect distribution channel in Latin America. And so one of our, our, our products failed and we needed to get that engine. And so this company, which is actually in the Midwest in, in uh, Wisconsin, um, you know, they had their, their, their distributor agent down there and the distributor agent wasn't honoring the warranty. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, here's this company and it's a big, well-known company and they have, you know, a network of, you know, 40 distributors in this country, but none of them are following the rules of engagement and none of them are, are practicing, you know, the, the culture of that company. And the culture of that company is all about customer service and customer service and quality. But because there's that disconnect and, you know, that one trip a year or just, you know, not really getting involved, not having people people who speak Spanish, not being down there working and developing the relationship, not only with the distributors, but with the actual end users, you know, they were clueless on what was going on. So I had to go back, you know, to the headquarters and resolve it that way. But this comes back to the point that this model does not work. The model where you uh, where the where, where the company, which is a, you know, has a distributor or distributors in the market, which is B, and then C, D, E, F, G, H are sometimes sub-distributors or, or customers. And you see that there's a big chain, but if the A or the U.S. portion is just, you know, dealing with the B, the distributor, you know, that's not really business. You know, you're just, um, you're, 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 you're just, uh, administrating in an American mindset in a market that works very differently. So the way that 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 I approach it, and then I help companies find distributors, and and work with distributors is very different. And I'd like to talk about that, but I first want to make sure that you understood um, the 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 scenario and 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 why the typical model of you know um, just you know relying on a distributor, having somebody that speaks English, using email, you know, occasional phone, and maybe go down there for a trade show does not work. Is was that part clear to you? Oh yeah, definitely. Okay, are we ready to go into the solution? Absolutely. I love solutions. Me too. But in order to find solutions, you have to understand the problem, right? Absolutely. So, so what was the problem with, with the typical model that we just described? Uh, the typical model is um, not taking into account the need to develop a relationship with the distributor, the agent, and also um, 
really understanding how the product is sold so that um, you understand uh, who's involved all in the distribution and purchasing process and um, frankly make sure you get to the end customers to understand what they really want. Exactly. So, so I heard you say relationship, yeah. how the product sold. Yeah. I'm going to add how the product serviced. Yep, absolutely. I'm going to add one more. What, what really is, are the agents and distributors doing? Yep. What is the customer experience? And then who are the customers? Yep. So, 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 so the model that I recommend is to not depend on, on an agent or distributor, but actually get involved and stay involved and build relationships with the end users. Yep. But the so so it, when we look at okay, I want to build out distribution in another country, and we can you know take Latin America, or we can take you know the Middle East, or we can take Asia. Um, the most common approach to finding a distributor is, okay, I want to find somebody, you know, within the segment, you know, I can go to different resources that can connect me to people, and then I'll find that agent, and that will be the end of it. Right. But I, my, the the recipe um, that, that I recommend, and that is the best, is before finding an agent, find the industry associations and leaders in your industry in a particular country. And what you'll find is that there's probably five or 10 organizations, maybe in one city or maybe in the country, depending how big it is. And you find the highest person in those organizations, the president, whoever. And what you do is you reach out to them and you make a trip. And so if your trip is focusing I want. I would like to meet you. I see that you're the head of the automotive, you know, industry in, in Mexico City. You know, I'm the CEO of a company that of a you know twenty five twenty five billion dollar or twenty five million dollar company in the U.S. Here's the type of customers, and we're looking to um, better understand your market. And I would love to get to know your association and learn about the activities and the members and how it works. So yeah. if, if you multiply that by five or six different industry organizations, what you're going to find is when you go through and you have those meetings, there's going to be messages going out from that uh, organization. And usually they're led by, you know, private sector leaders that serve a term in that organization and have very wide business nets and circles. And so when they hear that, you know, uh, uh, VP of sales for, you know, uh, American company from Wisconsin is coming down, I mean, if it's GM, it would be a little bit better. But, you know, you, you play it up and, and, and you give the best image possible and you will be received. And what will be happening is that is that these people are going to be your connection to find the right agents. And if you do it right, if you have five organizations and then each organization, probably the word gets out to 10 different people, suddenly you have 50 potential agents that's probably going to come from that that you can choose from. But again, you keep the relationships 
at the industry leader high sector association. You were talking about hierarchy before. So with the with the top of the pyramid, and and then you know through that pyramid you'll have lots of different agent and distributor options. And what you'll see is that suddenly the American company has. Um, more power, more understanding, more knowledge, and that they're not stuck with just dealing with the distributor and what the distributor is telling them because that model, which we discussed before, is like putting a blindfolder on your eyes and a filter in your ears, and you're just going to hear, you know, certain parts of the story. But with this other model, which is, you know, A is you. B are the the industry organizations and those leaders, and then C are all the potential distributors and folks that that come from that. Is that suddenly the American company has the power, and they're not tied to one distributor or what one distributor says about the market, but they'll be constantly courted. And the key is to keep making. And building relationships with those people in those industry leaders, you know, in the associations or when they lead the or when they leave the association. But those, that's the hierarchy. That's the top of the pyramid. And those are going to be the, those people and those that type of person and organizations are going to be the key to your success. And then suddenly, the distributor is is a portion of that. And if it's done right, they're going to realize, wow. This person is connected with at the senior top level, which, you know, maybe, you know, a local distributor cannot get to that level. And this is really going to help us because those people at that level and that association have ins and, you know, built in relationships. And it's really important for, for me as the distributor in this country to work the customer base, but that person's going to be working as the, you know, international, you know, top of the pyramid of the American company, another level. And that combination together is the is the model for success. I think I'd add one other aspect to it that I think a lot of certainly American companies or North American companies don't do very often, which is to ask to talk to some key customers. And again, associations can help you do that, but you may need somebody who really knows, for example, if you're selling into public hospitals, someone who can help you go visit them. But if you can get to the customer level, I think you'll get an enormous amount of intelligence, not only about who's an effective distributor or agent or who they like working with, or even the kind of person they like working with, but what your customers really want. And you can use that to mirror back when you're interviewing potential distributors and agents to see how in touch they seem to be with what the customers are saying. And you're, you're, you're right on target. So two weeks ago, I was in Mexico City and I was doing a consulting job for an education technology company. And they wanted a market assessment and, and some potential resellers. And um, the, the targets were elite, private, bilingual, international schools in Mexico City. And so in a week, I, I, I guess I, I had meetings with 10 of those uh, elite private schools, you know, some elementary, some middle, some higher education, and some and some universities. But in order to do that, I needed to 
understand, you know, how hierarchy works in these in, in these countries and use that hierarchy to ensure that I would get those appointments. But I also added in the Association of International Schools of Mexico simultaneously and the combination of doing both ensured that I would get those appointments and many more. So it's a it's a two pronged approach. I didn't want to get again. It involves language skills. It involves understanding hierarchy, which we should probably talk about next. But yes, you're right. Getting to the end customers, your distributors always come from the end customers. But as you mentioned before, is sometimes you know there might be some interest that might not be in your favor with some of those potential distributors, and that's why I prefer to really be very thorough and also meet some of the industry leaders who are who were leading educational reform in Mexico because it balances it out and also they their expertise and their position and their mile high view opened a lot of doors and even got me to more senior level contacts so it's a combination of the both so what do you say to companies when you suggest that they really need to get on an airplane and go visit distributors. And not distributors, they, they need to visit customers. But what do you say to companies, because I hear this a lot, they want the easy button. What do you say to people like that? I say go for it and come back when you want to start selling. And, and I know that sounds a little bit crass. They need to get some experience in, in the market. And also, you know, as, as a client, if they're not willing to make that investment in what it takes to be successful in that market, then that's not really an ideal customer for me, or it's not an ideal company that's going to be successful in that region. You mentioned hierarchy. Let's chat about that in the, the time we have left. Hierarchical environments in egalitarian environments are very different. They're polar opposites. The U.S. was founded, the whole history is egalitarian. People coming from different places and different backgrounds, different social classes, different colors, different foods, and different types of material, economic, and class levels, okay? And this is the land, for example, in my city, Washington, D.C., during the wars in Central America where the El Salvadoran community, we had the largest El Salvadoran community, I think, outside of California. And these people came and they came in and they saw tremendous opportunity and they saw that they could have chances to do that. And they built out and became the largest cleaning business entrepreneurs that there are. The Ethiopians came and became the parking lot entrepreneurs and own and manage all the parking places. So getting back to that is understanding first and recognizing that America is perceived as the land of opportunity and that we're in an egalitarian system where people in theory are treated equally and have equal access to things. In some parts of the country, in some areas, it's not 100%. But there's a constitution and there's an entire system based on equality and justice for all. Now, let's look at the developing world. Let's look at Latin America and and we'll see that that's not the same system. And, And there's another point that I need to mention is our laws are innocent before guilty. 
And in Latin America, the law is Napoleonic, where you're guilty until you're proven innocent. If we take into account that anybody can do it, and we take into account innocent before guilty, we're going into societies where not anybody can do it, and you're guilty before you're innocent, that ties into this hierarchy. So it's very common that 30% of the population controls 70% of the wealth. Yeah. I mean, Chile, you'll find some differences, Costa Rica, some, some, some anomalies. But in general, these are hierarchical environments, and it's very important to understand how hierarchy works. Hierarchy generally means that there's power at the top, and there's workers at the bottom, and there's very little in between. And that means that there's very little middle class and decision makers in between. And that it's really a select few make decisions and control things. Understanding how to work that is super important, whether it's the hotel that you're staying at, whether it's how you represent your company, whether it's the transportation that you use, it's your social grace, your social skills, because people in Latin America want to work with people that they can relate to and that, that are decision makers and have the ability and the power to make things happen and be successful. So this causes a lot of problems because in the egalitarian system, there's just a simple formula. But in these hierarchical societies, it's really how to understand and approach and work with the top and at the same time recognizing who are the key players within the top. And one of the things that I wrote about was the power of the executive assistant is a lot of times you'll see like the executive assistant in the U.S. seen as somebody like very ad more administrative. But in Latin America, the executive assistant to a business owner or to a vice president or a CEO is the key. And that involves hierarchy. And that person often is overlooked, but that person is somebody very approachable within the hierarchical process that's going to give the red, green, or yellow light to the people. And so understanding hierarchy, understanding how that executive assistant is a power broker in between is a key fact. Yeah. Let's talk just briefly about the opportunity. I mean, why go through all this? Why deal with all these differences? Why not just stay in your home market and really focus on deepening those relationships and sales? What I say is, look, Latin America, what they have to offer is that there's, I guess, six out of the 11 free trade agreements are mm -hmm. with Latin American country. Okay. But I'll just take one of those countries, which is Mexico, and I'll also contrast Brazil. Our third largest trading partner is Mexico. There's about $700 billion of business between the U.S. and Mex annually, according to the last study I saw at the Department of Commerce, which I think was from 2014. The, it's 60-40. So 60% of Mexican goods coming to the U.S., 40% of U.S. goods going to Mexico. What that means is that the free trade agreement that we have and the fact that 350 billion dollars of U.S. products and services are going into Mexico means that it's a very good market and a very good opportunity. You just need to understand how to work that. And just to put that in perspective, the U.S. sells more to Mexico 
than to Brazil, Russia, China, and India combined. Wow. That's huge. And I'll contrast Brazil. Brazil has no free trade agreements, and not only with the U.S., but with with any country. They do have free trade agreements with with Argentina and Paraguay, and it used to be Bolivia, but I'm not sure Bolivia is in the pie. And that's called the Mercosur. All right. But, But even with... In that, in the Mercosur, the tensions and the and the and the rules between Argentina and Brazil are constantly changing, and it's not effective. But what that means is that Brazil is a big market, but they're not trading globally, and so any product it's or service that's coming in is susceptible to huge tariffs. And then there's an incredible tax system where product is taxed three times that can mean that it's 300% of the value if it's not manufactured wholly in Brazil. And when it comes to spare parts, if any spare part is coming from the outside and there's a potential Brazilian part that falls within that category, then that part needs to be used. And the part that's coming from outside, not just the U.S., it can be Europe or Japan, will be taxed at those same rates. And it makes maintaining and doing business very difficult. And so what I see that the mistake is that a lot of the export initiatives have been focusing in the companies is I want to go to Mexico and Brazil. And Brazil is the hugest opportunity and the economy is growing at X percent. That's great. But if the barriers to entry are so impossible and the return on investment will take 10 to 15 years, then that's not a good export market. But you need to have specialists and people that have actually done business in the private sector and understand that to be able to know where and how to target. Right right now, Brazil has had a recession for the last two and a half years. There, it's 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 going through a lot of struggles, you know, and scandals, uh, both political, economic, and and social, and I would say that Brazil really doesn't right now fall into a category for U.S. companies unless they have very deep pockets, a 15-year you know, stomach, and a realization that they're going to have to manufacture everything in Brazil and all the spare parts and components that go into that are going to have to be Brazilian. And they're going to have to deal with some very, if you look historically, at the ups and downs of that region. And if you put put the unfair trade practices on top of that or the unfriendly you know, practices or policies towards international trade, it's not really a great place that companies that don't need to be in Brazil for strategic reasons should be. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I really appreciate you being with us today, Albert, and for sharing some of your insights about how to successfully grow in Latin America and through exports. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. I hope our listeners have enjoyed learning about some of the nuances of doing business in Latin America and have gotten a few tips on how to do business more successfully there. You can listen to interviews with our many other guests by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, on Google Play, Speakific, or on Global Globalocity Radio YouTube channel, or by visiting our website at www.globalocityservices.com. Thanks again for listening. <music>